Listeners, we need to talk about the holidays and divorce. It's a stressful time for families, especially when alcohol is involved, and our friends at Soberlink want to help. Soberlink has teamed up with divorce and family law experts to bring you information you didn't know that can provide peace of mind during the holidays. For those of you who still haven't heard about Soberlink, it is the solution for you if you are going through a divorce and custody case involving alcohol. Whether you are falsely accused of alcohol use or are concerned about your child's safety because of your other parent's alcohol use, Soberlink can help. Soberlink works hard to keep children safe, offering a remote alcohol monitoring system that is the gold standard because of its technology. Don't miss out on Soberlink's free guide for the upcoming holiday season. Request it today at www.soberlink.com backslash Susan. Coming up on today's episode of the Divorce and Beyond podcast. If you come up with the options for the client up front, then they can go into it and decide that they might may not want to keep the house or they may want to keep it but they have to negotiate some of the equity, the equity situation in a different way because they might not qualify for the whole thing that they need to do. So coming up with all their options just helps them make a better informed decision. Hello, and welcome to the Divorce and Beyond podcast. I'm Susan Guthrie, your host. As a top divorce attorney and family law mediator for 30 years, I know what you need to know to get through your divorce, and most importantly, how to move beyond it to thrive and transition to your new future. My experts and I are here to give you the insider view into the process, so listen in for the wisdom and expert information you need on your journey through divorce and beyond. Hello and welcome to today's podcast. I'm Susan Guthrie, your host, and today I've got a treat for you because I have one of my local friends visiting with me, one of my expert professionals here from Chicago. Uh, Tammy Wallensack is here with me, and she's going to help us walk through what I know is an issue for so many of you who are listening, and that is you want to keep the house in the divorce but you don't know what that involves. And the reason I asked Tammy to come in and talk about this is because this is really her area of expertise. She's a licensed mortgage loan originator. For those of you who don't know what that is, promise you, we will talk about what that is. And she's also, importantly, a certified divorce lending professional, which we will also unpack for you. But it really gives Tammy a special understanding of what you are facing when you want to keep the marital home in a divorce um, and the lending and all of the permutations of the difficulties that can go along with that. So first, let me just say welcome to her and thank you for joining us, Tammy. Thanks so much, Susan. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate it. Well, and I appreciate your making the time to talk about this issue because I have to tell you, the marital residence and what's going to happen with the house is probably one of the first questions I get when I meet with clients, whether it be mediation or as a divorce attorney. Um, It is usually one of the biggest, if not the biggest assets of the marriage, 
And very often that mortgage is one of the biggest debts in the marriage. Um, so it's a, right. It's a toughie for people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think people are very emotionally tied to their home. Uh, rightfully so. Right. They, they built a lot of memories in the home and they, you know, have a lot of history in the home. And, um, so, and I think that's a lot of times something that people really want to hold on to. And so they're really just because it's so familiar to, um, keeping the house is a big issue. Yeah. I hear that a lot and I hear it in the context of wanting to keep the home base for the children the same. It's where they've, you know, put their heads on pillows for years. It's where they go to school from. It's often a place that people have put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into both financially and personally, you know, decorating and, and painting and doing repairs, etc. So it is something for many people that's an emotional aspect of divorce among the, as we know, many, many emotional aspects of divorce, but there is a very real financial component to keeping the house. And many people don't put a lot of thought into that until it becomes too late. They go along in the divorce process. They, they're like, oh, it's just the number one thing that I want is the house out of the divorce. And there's so much they need to think about. And there's so many complications that that's what I want to talk about today. And I, again, I appreciate your coming to, to discuss this. We're going to kind of hone in on the situation where we have one of the parties who really wants to keep the mm -hmm. house, but they find themselves uh, struggling because there's a large mortgage on it. There can be a large uh, amount of equity that perhaps their spouse would be entitled to. And very often when we have either someone who has stayed at home to raise children or who has not pursued their career to the extent they might have, their income might be an issue. So we'll, we'll unpack all of that. But before we do, I promised people that we were going to talk about what a licensed mortgage loan originator is and what a certified divorce lending professional designation means. So if you can help us start there. So a licensed mortgage originator um, in that field, we have to be licensed. We are regulated heavily by um, the uh, National Association of regulation for mortgage lenders. Um, they really, we have to go through testing um, and then we have to go through, um, we're in a database basically. So we have to have certain um, things that we have to adhere to, compliance things that we have to adhere to. We have to make sure that we're disclosing certain things to clients in a timely manner. We have to use certain language and we have to be clear and concise when we're talking about mortgage lending to people. So it's really important that you're talking to a licensed mortgage professional because um, you, you want to be able to get the correct information. So I've been a, a, a mortgage originator for several years, but I've been in the mortgage business for 30 well, and it sounds like that, that, you know, licensure, much like attorneys need to be licensed, yes. is for the protection of the consumer. It's a consumer protection. Yes, exactly. So um, if there's ever um, any things that are done improperly, it goes against your license. You don't want to lose your license. I mean, basically, you're out of the business if you don't do things properly. 
And then I know you've gone that step further and gotten the um, CDLP, Certified Divorce Lending Professional designation, yes. which is extremely helpful, obviously, in this field. Yes. Um, so the Certified Divorce Lending Professional, what I like to tell people is I really um, wanted to understand the process of divorce. So I wanted to understand what that looked like so that I could help people navigate it. Because as a mortgage professional, we know how to do a mortgage loan, but a lot of times it doesn't tie to the divorce. And I was getting clients coming to me post-divorce with their settlement agreements and saying, guess what? I get to keep the house. And I'm like, guess what? You can't because like in the mortgage world, there's a big gap there sometimes. And I can help fill those gaps if I can get to people at the very beginning of the process and do what's what I call divorce mortgage planning, right? We come up with solutions and options for the client to make sure that they make a better informed decision when they're going through their negotiations. They can't just sign the settlement agreement I mean, that's you're inking something that's like court ordered, right? And then you are not able to fulfill it post-divorce. That's not a very successful negotiation. So if you come up with the options for the client up front, then they can go into it and decide that they might may not want to keep the house or they may want to keep it but they have to negotiate some of the equity, the equity situation in a different way because they might not qualify for the whole thing that they need to do. So coming up with all their options just helps them make a better informed decision. Well, and that's exactly what I want to talk about today, because for so many people, as I, I said at the top of this episode, they come through the door or they walk into the divorce negotiation, whether it's mediation or through their attorney. And what they have in their mind is, I want to keep the house, yes. right? And what is involved in that is so much more complicated than just, I'm going to stay in this house, I'll take over paying the mortgage, you go away, yeah. which is what they think for the, of their spouse right. or their soon-to-be ex-spouse, right. and boom, we're done. Yeah. So... That's what, you know, why I think bringing someone in like you is is not just, op, you know, optimal. It's actually necessary because you've pointed something important out. If you make an agreement in your settlement agreement that you are going to say, keep the house and do certain things, be responsible for the mortgage, pay out the equity or the half of the equity to your spouse, whatever those things are, you have to know that you can do those things or you are putting yourself in a precarious position post-divorce. So let's break this down for people because I want to just, a lot, you'll be surprised, or maybe you aren't because this is what you do. I find a lot of people don't even understand, you know, what equity is, what the mortgage is, what, how, how that works. Um, so maybe just in simple terms, talk about, you know, the, the equity, how you calculate equity in a home and, and how the mortgage actually works for people. So on a, um, when you have a mortgage on a home, um, there's what you owe on the home as opposed to what the value of the home is. You can calculate the value several ways. They can be from, you can go out and get what's called a CMA, which is a, a um, 
a current market analysis on the home. And that's maybe what a realtor might do for you. And they might project what you can sell the home for based on, you know, what's going on in your neighborhood and your marketplace based on the square footage of your home, those type of things. Or you can get a residential appraisal done and an appraisal looks at the past, the past. It looks like what's sold in your area, sold and closed in your area and what those sale, sales are that, that are comparable to your home. So that those would be two ways to get the value of the home. So you have the value of the home and then you have what your the balance of your mortgage is and what's in between there is what's the, what's called the equity. So that's the equity in the home. That's the difference between the value of the home and the mortgage on the home. So that's such a good point that you've made, Tammy, about what the equity is, because I'll tell you, I've seen so many people come through the door with an idea that what they purchase the house for is what the value of the home is. And as you've just you know, correctly pointed out, value of a home will change as the market changes over time. Yes. So you've talked about getting an appraisal or getting a CMA to set the value at the time of the divorce, right? You have to know what your home is worth when you're going through the divorce, and that may not be the purchase price. Um, if you bought your house many years ago, I can almost guarantee it's not the purchase price. So you're starting with kind of what we call the fair market value, right? What's your house worth today? And then as you said, you subtract out the current amount of what you still owe on the mortgage. And, and that's the same, right? It may be a different amount than your original mortgage amount. You may have originally, when you bought the house, gotten a mortgage of 200,000, but you've been paying it during the marriage. And now it's 150. Yes. So there's a difference between those two numbers. And that's what your equity is. And that's a marital asset. The equity in the home is a marital asset. So that, that could be a significant number in, in some instances. I mean, almost, well, we've certainly seen different things over the years, right? right? In the late 2000s, uh, 2008, 2009, we saw a lot of situations where, in fact, there was no equity in the home or, in yes. fact, it was on wa underwater. Yeah. But more often these days, what we see, I'll give an example, a house that has a fair market value of $400,000 and there's still a $200,000 balance on the mortgage. So the equity in that particular home would be $200,000 and you know that that would need to be divided amongst that couple in some way often 50-50 but the other complicating factor that i think people don't realize is that mortgage because that mortgage is generally usually held by both of the people who are in that marriage, right? Absolutely. And if one of them's going to keep the house, what happens with that mortgage? Right. When one of them decides to keep the house, the other person more than likely does not want to be tied to that mortgage post-divorce because it's also tied to their credit report um, and their credit and um, their ability to go out and buy future homes. Most of the time, what happens is that person... It's keeping the house, has to refinance the home in just their name alone and qualify in just their name alone and remove the other spouse. Um, it's just called a quick claim deed. So the other spouse basically gives up their ownership in the house by this other person um, doing what's necessary to keep the house. Yeah. And, and that's 
something, and I think this is the biggest area where people do not understand um, that if there's that, I'll use our example of $200,000 in equity in the home and you want to keep the house. What you have to do is figure out two things. One, how you're going to get your spouse their roughly $100,000 in equity, the money they are due out of that asset. And two, how you're gonna get their name off the mortgage. And that's complicated. And as you've pointed out, the number one way I think that we do that or we see it done is the person who's keeping the home goes and gets basically a new mortgage. Yes. They go get a mortgage in their own name that pays off the $200,000, but now they've got a debt in their name of $200,000. Mm -hmm. But it's more complicated than that. I feel like, but wait, there's more. <laughs> yes, exactly. It is. How, how does someone... And, and I referenced, uh, you know, a, a mythical person, but who might be my, you know, people who are listening, mm -hmm. someone who doesn't have a lot of income of their own, mm -hmm. maybe has been a stay at home parent or who has not really pursued their career. So they'd have more availability to raise the family during the marriage. Mm -hmm. So now they need to go out and get that $200,000 mortgage or whatever it might be in their case. Yeah. How do they do that? What What's involved? Well, they have to go apply with somebody like myself and we have to start analyzing, um, you know, if there is an income stream, maybe there might be part-time income that they've, you, you know, they might've worked a little bit or part-time, but just because you have income coming into the home, into your bank account, so to speak, does not mean it's what we call in the mortgage business qualified income. And qualified income means it has to have a history of it, it has to be consistent, and it has to continue. Versus, you know, we have to know that it's going to continue. So let's say there's no income. Let's say there's no job. Um, they've that's been a, a stay-at-home spouse, and they've been taking care of the children. They have not worked outside the home. In that case a lot of times they have to qualify using maintenance that they might be awarded um, from the other spouse, right? They might be awarded income that they're going to be receiving from the other spouse to kind of equalize their income and to be able to take care of the, the mortgage payment and all the other things. So we can use that maintenance or that projected maintenance, but we kind of need to know what those numbers are and it has to um be received for a certain amount of time. So you need receipt of that for typically three to six months, depending on the mortgage program. And we need to show that there's receipt of it. And then we need to show that there's a continuance of it. So that's where it gets super complicated because sometimes part of that might be child support. You might have children that are, let's say 16 and you're going to only get it till they're 18. In the mortgage world, you need a three-year continuance. Well, that's only a two-year continuance. I cannot use that in the mortgage world as income. You might be getting it today and say, but I'm getting this amount. I'm sorry, you cannot use it to qualify to keep the house. So um, lots of moving parts and a lot of things to take into consideration. That is such a great point, Tammy, about maintenance or for those listeners who are in other states, alimony, spousal support. But here's a point I want people to understand, because you mentioned earlier how important it is to get involved 
and working with someone like you early in a case, the three month period that you mentioned or six months or whatever that lender is looking for to see that spousal support or maintenance or alimony coming in, that can be a temporary order that starts during the divorce process. So the earlier you start working with someone like you who can let someone know what type of income need is needed, start building that, you know, income stream and go to court and get those temporary orders in place, that can actually start your process right in the middle of the divorce process rather than what you talked about earlier, someone who comes to you with their agreement after the divorce is finalized. So I think that's a really critical point. You want to start thinking about what the support stream looks like if you're going to be receiving alimony or support early on in this process, if you want to keep the home. Absolutely. You need to know kind of, even if you don't know precisely what the amount is going to be, you can start that process. And then it, it, it that's what starts the clock running, so to speak. So if there's a temporary order in place, the, what I call the out spouse, the spouse that's leaving is paying, the spouse that's keep staying a certain amount of money. It's from their individual account to another person's individual account. It can't just be voluntary. If Even if they're, they are paying it, it needs to be documented, so to speak, for, the, for mortgage purposes. Um, and that's the only really way to do it is it, that it's court ordered. You're, you're paying from an individual bank account to another individual bank account and can't have commingled, so, so to speak, funds in like a marital account that's just being transferred or something like that. Then you're just transferring your own money to another account. So. Well, and I know that often um, for these mortgage applications, ultimately what a bank is looking for is a certified copy of the judgment mm -hmm. that says this much support's going to be paid and this is how long it's going to be paid for to meet those sort of hallmarks you were talking about mm -hmm. of amount and duration, right? Even um, that you know that it's going to be a three-year continuance because sometimes you can negotiate maybe even a smaller amount so that it continues for a longer period of time um, just so that you can qualify. But knowing that up front so that you can make those decisions, maybe that's not an option. You know, maybe it is what it is and it's only going to happen for a certain amount of time, period. And then you know it can't be used and then it can't be used to qualify you. So you need, we need to switch gears and do something else. Well, that's such a good point because people can switch gears. That isn't the only po potential option. Other things I've seen people do are get a co-borrower as a family member, sometimes their parents or a sibling who is willing to co-sign on who has an income stream that might qualify. Is is that something that you see? I do. I see that. Um, I see that where, you know, there might be a mom or a dad that's willing to go on the house for a certain period of time just until that person gets back on, on their feet and there's a um, ability to to take the parents off of it, but at least it's on their side of the fence, so to speak. And then the other thing I've seen is if there's a lump sum distributions, if you can get to them before, if there's a just a pot of money, so to speak, being awarded to the um, in-spouse, we can take that money and put it in a revocable trust and it can create an income stream. But only if we get to make those decisions before you sign on your settlement agreement. Can the, can a lot of these options happen? 
So we can create income streams out of kind of nowhere, so to speak, if um, if we have the opportunity to kind of look at what's what's being awarded to you and what's happening. Well, it's part of, you know, that I, I always talk about on the show, the team approach to divorce. And really, you're another team member who helps with the option generating and helps with the brainstorming. We were just talking you know, right here about different ways that you can make that income stream work to get the loan from your lender. Hi, listeners. It's Susan. So I get a lot of outreach from you with a lot of questions and a lot of people who are just feeling either stuck because they don't know where to move forward next in their divorce. Um, They don't know what professionals they should be hiring or what process they should be using to approach their divorce, or they just need some help strategizing a path forward. Well, in order to help, what I've done is I've created a strategy session with Susan. Um, I'm offering a limited number of one-hour strategy sessions each week, and in those, we will spend some time looking for some clarity around your situation and help in developing a plan that's going to move you and your divorce forward. So if you want to book one, go to divorcebeyond.com backslash strategy with Susan, and you'll get on my calendar and we'll get you moving forward. So again, that's divorcebeyond.com backslash strategy with Susan. Stay tuned for more from certified divorce lending professional, Tammy Wallensack, who shares some creative solutions around what you can do with the marital home in a divorce. So the only way to make these decisions properly is to do it before you sign your settlement agreement and know what all the pieces of the puzzle are. Um, and know exactly what your mortgage payment's going to look like post-divorce, because otherwise it's just a guess. If you are enjoying this episode, be sure to check out last week's show with intuitive healer, Holly Hughes, who takes us on a deep dive into how radical self-care is a key to thriving during and after your divorce. Part of self-care is knowing who you are and how you operate and then giving yourself space to do it. That is the hardest part for so many people, just that, like, this is what I need right now. And now we return to today's show. The other thing that you need to be able to do is figure out where you're going to come up with the equity to pay out your spouse, right? The out spouses, as you referenced them. Mm -hmm. And so in the example I gave of a $400,000 home or fair market value of a home with a $200,000 current mortgage on it, that person might owe about $100,000 in equity. And this can be complicated when it it rolls into this refinance, right? Maybe you can explain that. Yeah. So what that's called in the mortgage world um, is an equity buyout. And you, if it's spelled out specifically in your settlement agreement as an equity buyout, then we can you we can consider it a rate and term mortgage. So it's not a lot of times people think it's a cash out mortgage that you're taking cash. And the difference is in between a cash out and a rate and term mortgage are the terms. You get the best terms if it's considered a rate and term. So we can take, and it also allows you 
to have the ability to access more equity of the home. If you're doing a cash out mortgage in the mortgage world, you're capped at 80% of the value. You cannot take more than 80% of the value of your home in a cash out situation. If you're doing a rate and term refinance, you can access up to 95, sometimes 97% of the value. So it gives you more access. It gives you the best terms, but it has to be spelled out in your agreement and you have to qualify to do that. So now you have to qualify not only for 200,000, but 300,000. So your new loans, 300,000, that's what your new payment's going to be based on. That's what everything's going, you know, so you can't just look at what your payment is today and be like, oh, that's good. Because your new payment's going to be what the new terms are, meaning what what's the rate in the new in the marketplace that you're refinancing in. Well, if you if you have a rate that's three percent because you refinanced two two or three years ago, and now you're trying to do it today, and rates are five and a half percent, let's just say on average, your payment's going to look a lot different than it does today, and you have to be ready for that or capable of making that without it, you know, being a a stressor on you. I think that's where people, they want to keep the house and then they realize what the mortgage payment's going to look like. And then they're like, wow, that's, that's a lot because that's not what they're used to paying anyways. You know, that wasn't what they were used to paying. So it could be double of what you're used to paying. I mean, you've made so many great points right there. We in just what the past year have seen mortgage rates just skyrocket to one of the highest interest rates. I think we are over five and a half percent on average right now for 30 year loans. Um, And not that long ago, really, we were in the 3% range. Now that may not sound to listeners like a huge difference, 3%, 5%, what's the big deal? It can be a very big difference when you're talking about these hundreds of thousands of dollars loans And let's not forget that when you take over the house, you also take over all of the expenses of the house. And the first two I want to talk about are the fact that the taxes and the homeowner's insurance become your responsibility. And they might change as a result of this refinance and the fact that now title is only going to be held in your name as well, right? Yeah, that's a really good point. And I really have people that want to keep the house, consult their insurance advisor, right? Because when when you're going out to get insurance in just one person's name, a lot of times insurance um, brokers, what they do when they price out insurance is, you know, you get group discounts. You might have multiple cars, you might have, you know, the house and different things that come into the package, so to speak, and be priced that way. Well, one spouse is leaving, they're taking their car with them, and they're going to insure their car on their own. Maybe the insurance, maybe they had better credit than you had. And the insurance was was underwritten based on their credit score. Now you're having to um, get new insurance. So your insurance might look very different in addition to the mortgage payment looking very different. So the only way to make these decisions properly is to do it before you sign your settlement agreement and know what all the pieces of the puzzle are um, and know exactly what your mortgage payment's going to look like post-divorce. Because otherwise you're just kind of, it's just a, it's just a guess. It's just a guess. And if you're guessing based on history, 
it's not a very good guess is, is what no, I'm it's a very bad guess. Yeah. It's a very bad guess. Yeah. Well, and that's something I bet a lot of people didn't know is that your insurance rates for homeowners and car insurance can be impacted by your credit rating. And I don't think a lot of people understand that. Yes, it can be. It's basically re um, underwritten when you're going to get a new uh, policy in just one person's name. Um, because they're assessing the risk of just that one person. So credit scores are very, very important. Um, and that's why it's really good too. Um, annualcreditreport.com is a source that I like to give out where people can take a look at their credit report. It's a, it's free. Um, it's a free service. You can go get your credit report. You can get all three bureaus of your credit report and you can see exactly what's on there and you can monitor it, especially when you're going through a divorce. Sometimes people miss payments inadvertently, sometimes on purpose. Um, so you really want to monitor it during the divorce process and make sure that you understand exactly what's on your credit report and how things are going are progressing as you're going through the divorce. Yeah, because, you know, the credit is one of those areas, and this is probably an, another episode I should be doing, so I'm going to put this on my list, but credit is very often negatively affected during the divorce process for a variety of reasons. And actually, this yes. brings up for me um, another question for you, because I see that this happens often. Do you see cases where somebody needs to, they're going to start working post-dissolution or they may have started um, in a new job or taking on new job responsibilities because they know a divorce is coming. And so although yeah. they don't have the three years of, of anticipated maintenance or spousal support coming, they do see an income stream that's going to increase through their own work efforts. But mm -hmm. so the parties explore this idea of refinancing down the road. They give it mm -hmm. some time, like the sp the outspouse, as you as you called them. Mm -hmm. I like that term. Um, the outspouse yeah. will stay on the current mortgage for a while to give mm -hmm. that other person, the person who's keeping the home, a chance to build up their ability mm -hmm. to refinance. But now we're in a complicated situation, right? Because now there's a mortgage payment that's in both their names that needs to be paid and perhaps taxes and homeowners insurance and all of that. So what do you see with that sort of a situation? Well, I think that that's a sticky, uh, you know, a slippery slope to go down because um, the person leaving the home, if they're tied to the mortgage payment and for some reason inadvertently or, you know, maybe things are, are you know, something else comes up and a mortgage payment gets missed both credit reports are impacted and it can be impacted significantly with a mo with a missed mortgage payment. It can drop scores hundreds of points. And then that person that is going to refinance the home down the road with very good intention to refinance the home down the road might be thrown out of being having the ability to just because of the credit situation. So not only their income situation is tied to those decisions, but also their credit is tied to those decisions. So it's really important that your credit report, and if your credit is not up to speed, so to speak, um, to get it there, like to work on it, to like know what's on there. Maybe there's a small collection or something that you didn't even know was on there that you can easily take care of. But sometimes with credit, it's time yeah. too. It takes time um, to fix it. It takes time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you make a good so. a, a good point that 
not both parties credit in that situation can be impacted. I've seen clients who for their personal reasons, maybe they want their kids to be able to stay in the home, but their uh, ex-spouse is not able to refinance right away. So they say, sure, I'll, I'll stay on the mortgage for a year, but he or she has to pay it and be fully responsible. But something happens you know, things have, some people are just not good at paying bills all the way up to they get sick and they're not making money or whatever happens. And when that payment doesn't get made, as you just said, it's going to hit that person who was being good or trying to do the right thing. Um, it just as hard, if not harder, because the the mortgage payment didn't get paid in a timely fashion. And there's no fixing that by saying, well, it was my ex-wife or my ex-husband's responsibility. I'm sorry, I've not ever seen that explanation get a negative mark taken off of someone's credit report. Never, no, it's just now you just have, now it's absolutely time. There's nothing you can do to correct that. I mean, you miss a mortgage payment and it goes 30 days delinquent on the 31st day of delinquency, it hits your credit report and it'll drop your score significantly. It not only impacts um, your ability to refinance mortgage wise, but it impacts everything that you try to do. You try to go out and get a car loan now, problem. You try to get a credit card, there's a problem. You know, everything that you try to do credit wise is tied to your credit report. So it's, it's, it's like almost the most important thing that you should really pay attention to is your credit report. Yeah. I do want to get a little, a little tip for those who might be considering that situation is we've always put language in our agreements when someone is staying on a mortgage for a time period that if the person who's responsible for the mortgage payments during that time period is unable to make a payment, they immediately notify the other person in advance of, of there being, you know, it being late. So at least that person can make the payment if they have mm-hmm. the means so that they can protect their credit score, because frankly, that's all that's available to that person to try and protect themselves. I would also add to that, Susan, that what they can do, the outspouse can also request from the servicer a duplicate copy of their um, mortgage statement. So it can be mailed to their their home as well. So they can get a duplicate copy every month, just as just like they were living in the home and getting a copy of their statement, e- probably more email to them or right. digital these days, but they can um, request that from their servicer. So they know exactly what's going on with that mortgage and that mortgage payment as well. That's a great tip. And that's a tip where self-help is going to be your best friend in that situation so that you're monitoring whether that payment got made. And God forbid on the last day possible, if it hasn't been made, you may want to make it to save your your credit report. Oh, absolutely. You would definitely want to make it. Yeah. And, and, and it's worth it. And that doesn't mean that the, the other person who was supposed to make it doesn't now owe you that money, but at least you've right. protected yourself. And then there's right. there's one more aspect of, of this whole refinance, keep the house, mortgage payments, et cetera. And we've sort of talked about the fact that there are other payments that c- go along with house home ownership. It's really important if someone's planning on keeping the house, on going through this refinance, on paying for all of these things, that they make sure that their budget going forward is actually going to cover, because it's not just the mortgage, it's the taxes and the insurance, no. is it? 
No, it's not. I mean, this is something that I went through personally. So I'm pretty um, uh, passionate about explaining this to people is it's really just not just the mortgage. There's a lot to home ownership. You have to keep, you know, things um, working appropriately. Sometimes you've lived in the home for 10 years and now all of a sudden, like you need new appliances or you need you know, things um, repaired that um, were in distress or, you know, you might need um, a new roof, uh, God forbid, you know, or stuff that's really a large ticket item. So I always say, you know, if you're going to decide to keep the house, make sure you get um, a, a, an inspection done, just like you were if you were going to go out and buy a new home so that you're fully aware of what you're signing up for. If you get an inspection done, it's going to cost you, you know, three or $400, I don't know, depending on where you are in the country. But if, if you then find out that you have, you know, water damage somewhere that you weren't even aware of or something wrong with plumbing or something wrong with your roof or something wrong that you really didn't even understand, you're the one signing up to, to uh, be responsible for that. I mean, it's your responsibility by keeping the house. Yeah. You know, I've never heard anyone say that. Get a home inspection at the time of the divorce. But it makes so much sense because you are actually buying a house at that time, really. Yes. It may be a house you yes. know, um, mm -hmm. and I see that as being significant in two ways. One, it may affect the fair market value of the home, right? The, yes. the If you need a new roof, which by the way is a fifteen to $30,000 expense for most homes, or a new furnace, five to $8,000, or whatever it might be, and that wasn't taken into consideration in the CMA or appraisal, it may affect that fair market value, which affects the buyout figures, et cetera. And that is something that you, just as a homeowner, you need to be aware of. So I think that that's a, a, an incredibly important tip for people that they wouldn't have originally thought of. Because homeownership, I know myself, you mentioned you've been through it. I went through it myself mm -hmm. as well. My When I got divorced, um, my part of our situation was that my ex-husband bought a house and, and that gave that to me as part of the settlement. And mm -hmm. it turned out within the first year, I needed a new furnace. That's how I know how much a furnace costs. Yeah. Um, and a few <laughs> yes. other things, which meant I had to come up with tens of thousands of dollars in cash right away. That you were not expecting. And it can be really, really stressful. Um, and that's something that you're not aware of you're signing up for. So that then, you know, you fought all this time to keep the house. Now all this stuff's happening. And then you say, shoot, maybe I should just sell it. Okay. Well, guess what? Now all the fees and the realtor fees and taxes and everything associated with selling the house are just on your side of the fence now yep. where you if you ended up selling it previously with your spouse you basically split those costs of selling the house and then you net out whatever's left right, right. so you know you're so full of good points because that's another <laughs> one that i don't think people truly understand and i'm just going to reiterate it um for for my listeners if you sell the house during the divorce then the cost of the realtor's commission and you know all of the various costs and fees, there are taxes when you sell a house, there are conveyance taxes, things like that. We estimate they're eight to 9% of the sales price. 
Um, those are, and you're splitting the proceeds. Well, you're splitting the costs of sale as well. If you're, if you're doing that during the divorce, but if you keep the house in the divorce and then sell it down the road, that a hundred percent of those fees and costs now come out of whatever the proceeds of the sale are. Now that can be good if your house continues to appreciate in value and the equity goes up, it may be worth taking that four and a half to five or whatever percent hit um, on your own. But gosh darn it, you need to know about that in part of your decision making, right? Right, right. And if you, do, if you, you know, all of a sudden you realize that you're going to need a new roof. So you're like, I'm going to sell the house. <laughs> you're double, you're double, you know, it's a double issue for you because so making all those decisions as you're going through your negotiations and bringing in the accurate professionals to help you make these decisions. You don't have to make them on your own, but knowing what they all are is really, um, really, really important. Well, and and starting gathering this information and doing this analysis and generating these options as early as possible in the process if keeping the home is something that is being considered. So mm -hmm. we've, yeah. we've, we've said that multiple times. How would, if somebody wanted to work with you, what's the best way for someone to get in touch with you to start talking about this in the early days of your divorce, everyone? Yes, absolutely. So I have a calendar link on my website, which is TammyWallensack.com. And, uh, you know, I do free consultations. My services, I do not charge for my services because I am licensed. Um, it's against uh, ECOA and RESPA by me to, to charge a consulting fee. So my services are free. Um, and I am more than happy to work with you and your divorce team on um, coming up with options. Um, and then, you know, if there is a transaction, I happen to be able to do a mortgage at the end of the day, if there happens to be one. So, well, I think that that is, you know, a very significant um, thing for people to keep in mind. And I urge you, everyone out there, and I think you've heard in this episode, tips uh, for both sides of the fence, the person who wants to keep the house and the person who may stay on the mortgage for a while so that the other person can keep the house. So it really doesn't matter what side of this you're coming in from. It can be very helpful to talk to Tammy or someone who does what she does during the divorce so that you don't make mistakes and you're not like those people who come to Tammy after the divorce and find themselves in a situation that they hadn't anticipated. So I urge you to reach out to her. I will put all of her contact information as well as her social media handles, et cetera, and links to the, her website um, in the show notes for this episode. And Tammy, so many good, I, I call them golden nuggets, so many great golden nuggets for my listeners in this episode. The one that's a little scary is that credit report, folks. I promise to do that episode for you soon. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Susan. It was a pleasure. And I um, I look forward to, to helping anybody, any of your viewers so, and listeners. Well, thank you so much, Tammy. Thank you for joining me today on the Divorce and Beyond podcast. I hope you found some information and inspiration to help you on this journey. Please join me every Monday at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time for a new episode. And if you like the show, please take the time to subscribe and leave me a five-star review on iTunes. 
You can also find more information on the website at divorceandbeyondpod.com, where you'll find links to the YouTube channel, transcripts of the episodes, and other bonus content. So I'll see you next week to help you move through your divorce and beyond.